listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get started with this week's episode. And it's another story from Cobb Keating in the Battle of Camdesh. Yeah, we've kind of saturated you guys with this story, but there were a lot of people who fought in this battle that really wanted to share their perspective on it. So we wanted to share it with you, but more on that in just a moment. First, wanted to remind you guys that next week we will be debuting our video version of the Hazard Ground Podcast with our partners from Killcliffe. Next week, you'll be able to watch The Hazard Ground and all the episodes going forward. You'll be able to watch it as well as hear it. You can hear it right here, the way you're listening to it right now, wherever you get your podcasts, but on our YouTube channel and on hazardground.com, you'll be able to actually watch all of our guests and see the interaction that we're having at the same time. Very excited for that. Hope you guys enjoy it. Let us know what you think as soon as you watch it. Also, a reminder to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll see all the videos going forward. And keep the Apple Podcast reviews coming, please. Again, I know we're going to video format as well, but those Apple Podcast reviews are so important. They're helping us grow this podcast. Apple is starting to push this a little more. We can't do it without you guys. The more reviews we get, the more popular this thing is going to grow. So we need your help. And we always appreciate you guys taking time out to leave a quick review. It doesn't have to be anything lengthy, just something short and sweet. Let's us know how much you love the show and go from there. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon on our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Also, you can do the same thing on your smartphone. It'll redirect you right to the app. So this way, all of your information is saved. Easy shopping. Whatever you guys spend, we get a percentage of. Then we donated a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So you can donate to veterans and veterans charities right by doing your normal Amazon shopping. As always, we thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground community and for your continued support. And now let's get on with this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground is a former Army sergeant who spent five total years in the military, has one deployment to Afghanistan, and is another member of the fated Red Platoon from 361 Cav at Cobb Keating in Afghanistan. And the Battle of Kamdesh, we have told this story several times before. He also spent time in Korea. He is currently working to become a therapist and dedicating the rest of his life to helping soldiers with their mental health and continuing to help improve the quality of life of soldiers who have returned from war. He is Zach Kopez on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Zach, welcome, brother, and thanks for being here. Hey, how's it going? Well, again, it's certainly a story that we've told several times before, but our audience loves it, and I certainly love it because there's just so many different things that went on at Cop Keating. Um, it's almost like you get a different perspective every time you talk to somebody new. Uh, but we always start back at the beginning. Zach, tell us how and why you got in the military. Uh, I probably shouldn't have. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I was a stoner kid. I got kicked out of high school, uh, moved to Colorado. I thought I could impress a girl. Uh, at first, I, I thought about being a Navy SEAL because that sounded the coolest. Uh, but I ended up just being a, a scout which was the easier of the two routes. Let me ask you a question, though. I, I read a story uh, about you uh, and yeah. how you ended up actually um, coming to the recruiting station. Yes, yes. Uh, my wife loves this story. Uh, so I was out in Colorado. I was doing landscaping. 
Uh, I wasn't good at landscaping. So I was working at Annie Ann's pretzels. Uh, wasn't good at making pretzels. Uh, so I was just smoking a bunch of weed one day. Well, first of all, it and, makes a ton of sense that you smoke weed and work at Annie Ann's pretzels. Yeah. I mean, that's a perfect combination for the record. Yeah. You'd think it would have been like a match made in heaven, but, <laughs> uh, I, I was not the best worker they've ever had. Uh, <laughs> I'm not in, the, I'm not in a pretzel hall of fame or anything. Uh, but yeah, I, I was, I didn't know what to do. And, and sometimes when I got high, I had the best ideas. So I decided I wanted to work at like a zoo, uh, but we didn't live near any zoos. So uh, my second choice was Petsco. Mm-hmm. So uh, I hopped in my cousin's car and I was driving to Petsco and I saw a sign that said $20,000 signing bonus. And uh, I was like, oh, I could probably buy a lot of weed with that. <laughs> and the math just seemed to make sense from there on out. Oh, yeah, I went in. And I mean, they could probably just tell I was stoned out of my gourd. And uh, the guy gave me the ASVAB and he's like, are you serious about signing up? And at that point, I really wasn't. But he's, I was like, yeah, for sure. He's like, good, because we got a van going to Denver right now to take to take the real ASVAB. And I was like, oh, OK, here we go. Did you call and, your parents or anybody or no? No, I mean, this was this was a uh, uh, seat of my pants. And I got up there and uh, I scored like a 120 on my GT score. And the guy's like, you can do whatever you want. It's really impressive, bro. Yeah. I was like, I want to, I want to get out of here. <laughs> I want to, I want to leave. But, uh, you know, he gave me a DVD with jobs on it. And uh, I watched the scout video and this guy's riding a motorcycle. And, uh, you know, they're like going through water and stuff. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's what my 140 pound frame should do. Did at any point in time he ever tell you that when you're in the military you're not allowed to smoke weed? Um, yeah, he, he gestured. <laughs> he gestured towards that. Uh, Did that sort of ruin your plans with the twenty k? Yeah, well, I was, I was like, I weighed nothing. I think it was like 140, 130. I'm six I'm one, so I was like 135, 140 pounds. I think it probably took me, a, you know, a brisk walk to burn it all off. Uh, but you know. I had no idea what I was getting into at all. And uh, my recruiter, like we were driving somewhere to pick up somebody for like future soldier stuff. He talks, he starts telling me how he like sleeps in the closet and his marriage is falling apart. And I was just like, Oh man, I should not do this. But uh, I followed through and uh, I signed up. So when you pick Cav Scout, um, you picked it because it just seemed like the coolest thing. I mean, it, of all the jobs on this DVD that you watched, that's the one that stood out to you the most. One hundred percent. In fact, uh, it kind of—I'll be honest. This is kind of an embarrassing story for me. Uh, originally, I went psyops. Okay. And uh, and my recruiter kept telling me, you know, pick a pick a backup, you know, just in case. And I was like, okay, but I want to do psyops. He's like, yeah, yeah, but just pick a backup. And uh, I was like, oh, Cap Scout, you know, that's my backup. That was the coolest one. And then on the day I signed my contract, he's like, uh, PSYOPs, you can't go into PSYOPs. It doesn't exist uh, for basic training anymore. So uh, you're going to be a scout? And I was like, eh, yeah, sure. Interesting. Really, yeah, I uh, I don't really think things through, as you'll find more and more throughout this interview. Well, I, I kind of feel like... It... 
If I recall correctly, PSYOPs isn't even like anything you can get into until you're officially in. Oh, 100%. Like, as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, I mean, anybody can go into PSYOPs. It doesn't matter what your previous MOS is, but Mm -hmm. it's not one that you're ever going to get from the jump. And um, he wouldn't be the first recruiter to lead somebody astray. Oh, no. And it was during the surge. So the people I was signing up with, they all had to get different jobs. One guy had a waiver packet. It looked like a phone book. It was just nothing but waivers. And, and you know, just during that point in time, they're just taking any body that could get to walk through that door. So from Auntie Anne's pretzels to basic training, um, when you told your parents, what did they say? I think they were happy. They're like, oh, you're, you're going to have to stop being a dopehead and do something with your life. <laughs> so I think they were pretty excited about it. Uh, Interesting. I think- I think my dad would have liked me to go to college, but my mom had much lower expectations for me. So she was very excited about it. So she was the realist between the two. Yeah. Oh yeah. She was like, <laughs> she was like, this fits you well. And I was like, well, it's either this or college. She's like, I think you're making the right decision. Even though there's two wars going on. Mom, mom's all yeah. for this. She's like, you know, you don't need legs to go to school. <laughs> Jesus. That's terrible. When you get to basic, uh, as you said, you knew nothing of this. Uh, were you in oh, a total no. culture shock? Yeah, I was terrified. Really? Terrified. Oh, yeah. What was the most terrifying and, part about it? Oh, everything. Like, I got there, and once again, I'm just such a laid-back dude, and we're all standing in formation, and this tiny old drill sergeant just screaming. I remember, I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and it's just pouring down rain. It's like cold Kentucky rain, and... uh he goes, he goes, I want you to run down to the end of these buildings and, and tell me what the number of the last building is. Because that's the med building. I need to let everyone know. And I was like, okay. So I run down to this building. I cannot find the number of this building anywhere. And at this point, I'm like, maybe it would just be better if I ran away. Like, this is my, this is my opening. <laughs> and, and I was like, no, I got to go back. And You're going to forest gump it? I just felt like running oh. and just keep on running. Just keep them the wheels turning until I got back to Ohio. And I was like, uh, drill sergeant, uh, it didn't say. And he goes, Oh, it didn't say? It didn't say. You think the building's gonna fucking talk to you? And I was like, Oh no. I just knew at that point, uh, the happy go lucky world uh was behind me. And I lost my two court canteen. I think someone stole it. It was just a nightmare. And everyone else was going to like, you know, nice jobs, but I was going to be a scout and they're like, oh, it's basically, you know, every week is like red week. So no breaks, no escapes. That's when it really hit me what I had, the decision that I had made. So how'd you make it through it? Um, I kind of, uh, I've kind of always got through life by just being like the funny guy and uh yeah but that doesn't really work in basic like cracking jokes all the time kind of pisses off drill sergeants doesn't it well you gotta be really funny you can't (laughs) half-ass you know like you can't have a single joke fall flat or they're just gonna destroy you (laughs) i remember it was like my first breakfast and they would just alternate between giving you sausage and bacon and you know two big so- i was so hungry and it was two sausage patties or two bacon and the and the cadre gave me bacon and i said uh could i have sausage 
and my drill sergeant heard and just smacked the plate out of my hand. And, and I just leaned back to the cadre. I was like, Oh, never mind. I think I'm good. <laughs> and he just thought it was so funny. He's like, get back in line. I was like, you know, so you gotta, you gotta make sure you hit, hit all your marks when you're trying to be a funny guy through basic training. I, I, I expect that, uh, you, you didn't fail in that endeavor. No, no, I, I made it through barely. No, I mean on jokes falling flat for that matter. Oh no, some of them did, and I paid for them severely. Give me an example. I'm warning, I'm warning the next group. Oh, I don't know. I think uh, we're at land, we're doing uh, night land nav, and somebody said it, they thought it'd be funny if I took the glow sticks and did like a rave, and I was like, oh, it could be funny, and I was doing it, and a drill sergeant from another platoon saw it and. I don't know why he must have had like a rave accident or something. It triggered something inside of him and he was just started throwing glow sticks at me. So, you know, maybe in your own circle, it can be good, but uh, there certainly are other ones that aren't. Uh, and just about all my drill sergeants at one point or other became my platoon sergeant later on in my career. And they did not forget me. Wow. That's funny. All right, so you, you get through basic training. Do you feel like you're on top of the world at this point? Like, oh, my God, I made it through? Or is it like, oh, my God, I made it through? What else is next? 100%. When I left basic training, that was like the best I've ever felt in my life. Really? Like I, felt, I felt like I accomplished something. I felt like uh, uh, I had direction in life. I was like, oh, I'm a lifer. I, I, after, after a couple months in the in military, I know it. I'm, I'm in this thing for life. And then uh, I went home. I just felt good. I like never had money in my whole life, and I had money. It was awesome. It was awesome. So I felt I felt on top of my world, the world after base training. But I did get assigned to Korea, so I was like, oh, I'm kind of nervous about you know going to Korea. But I mean, it's better than Iraq or Afghanistan. Was uh, was your mom, who thought you made the right decision, super proud of you as well? What'd she say when you got back? Uh, yeah, she was she was proud. I think she was nervous. Uh, we got a little tisk because she wanted to spend time with me, but I had a newfound manhood, so I was just chasing tail the whole time. So she was upset about that, but yeah, I think uh, I think everyone was just real proud that I did. I think they were more surprised than anything. Safe to say that you stopped smoking weed. I mean, you're out oh, yeah. now. You can tell us. <laughs> oh yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I I was ter I was terrified of like getting busted for anything, so I was always uh. I was always following the rules to some degree. Did did you miss it? Um, no, because uh, when you join the military, they introduce you to alcoholism, and it kind of <laughs> just took it. It kind of just took its place. One vice to another, right? Yeah, I was like, I'd be passed out somewhere. I'm like, oh, good thing I didn't smoke one joint yesterday, or the army would have kicked me out. Uh, but they're they're very pro. Have a couple of cocktails on uh, whenever you can. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know, every army event is just basically excuse to dress up and drink alcohol. So I made it to every one of them. How quickly did you end up getting to Korea? Um, so I got, I took my two weeks of leave and then I did hometown recruiter. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I had a month off to just kind of like party down and then got to Korea and, and it was like, it was it, no one can prepare a young private from Amish country uh, for the, the the whims of Korea. Why not? 
it's it's like a party it's like a party that never stops but you will be punished severely if they catch you so you know you get there and they're like oh you got to go downtown it's part of the tradition you got to sneak back through the fence uh you know and i was underage and they're like oh you can drink all you want just don't get caught you know so it was kind of this vibe where they wanted you to party but didn't want you to get caught partying and it made for a dangerous, uh, dangerous environment. I assume you got caught. I did not. Really? One time I was, uh, I was going through, uh, there's like a little hole in the fence by the E7 barracks. And, you know, after curfew, they like shut everything down. And me and my buddy Vizon were like, just terrified. We were both privates and we could hear somebody lifting the fence ahead of us. And it was our first sergeant. <laughs> so, so, uh, Yeah. We got caught, but, you know, nobody told on anybody that night. I assume that uh, they, the, for the most part, the, depl- the deployment to Korea, the, the, the stationing in Korea was, was uneventful. <laughs> uh, I just, I literally just partied. I literally partied the whole time. Um, and then halfway through, um, my sister does have, she did have cystic fibrosis and she passed away. So I had to come back for that. But, uh, and then, I mean, it was like bang, bang, went home for a funeral and then came back and it was right back in the army. Wow. When do you leave Korea? Let's see. Um, so I was in Korea and then uh, I got orders to go to Fort Bliss. And I was like, oh, that's cool. All my friends from Korea were going to Fort Bliss. Uh, I only signed a three year contract. So I don't, I, and they, they hadn't deployed yet. They're standing up a unit, but there was a girl in Colorado I liked. So I, uh, extended to get a uh, duty station of choice. And I want to say that was in like June of 2007, 2008, 2008. We deployed in 2009 mm-hmm. and, uh, headed to Fort Carson. And we broke up like whew, probably about a month after I got there. So extended for not much. I still got a backpack though, which was cool. I think my brother has it. Backpack from the girl? Uh backpack for re-enlisting. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I got nothing from the girl but heartache. <laughs> so when you get to Carson, uh where where are you going? Do you know exactly? Do you end up at uh, 361 Cav at that point? No, they uh so at first they were sending me to two four and uh like literally on the last day, they're like, no, you, you're not here long. Cause Korea has kind of the same rules. You have to be back for, I think six months before you can deploy our stateside, you know, for six months. So either I, I wasn't back long enough or, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to train me up. So they ended up sending me to four, four at like the last minute, but I was getting, I was literally telling everyone, I was like, Hey, I'm leaving for Iraq in a few months. And then it turned around and they sent me to four, four. And when do you get there? Oh, man. I think it was like, er, you know, I left in June, I think, of Korea, and I got there like July. Because I remember like my birthday, my breakup, and me hating Fort Carson were all like in the same month. Um, And this is of 2008, correct? 2008, yeah. All right. 
By the way, just out of curiosity, ever heard from the girl again? Ever connected with her on Facebook? Ever saw her again? Never. We we actually set up a date uh, to like mend things back up, and we went to this place called Mr. Biggs. Well, we were supposed to go to this place called Mr. Biggs, and uh, I was there, and she texted me. She's like, "No, I can't do it." I was like, "Oh, thanks." This whoa, whoa! She she texted you to meet up, and then stood you up. Yeah, I got stood up, but you know, it was worth it because I I got to go to war. <laughs> how does that compute i mean it doesn't i just uh uh, uh w- maybe one day like her descendants will hear this well i'm not gonna say her name but she, they'll know who she is <laughs> <laughs> they'll know what she did okay uh outside of choosing some choice words for her we'll we'll move on um so you're at fort carson in july of 2008 um now, 361 Cab doesn't de- deploy until around June of the following year. So is this next year sort of uneventful? Um, Kind of, like, but kind of not. Like, uh, the party just didn't end. And then, uh, you know, I met I met everyone. I met my best friend. And uh, it was it's kind of weird getting ready for a deployment. Like, you know it's coming. And then it just, like, I mean, like you said, we had a year. And it was like I blinked my eyes and then I was getting ready to get on the plane. So I don't remember a lot. I remember just like going out, going hard. Uh, and then all of a sudden I woke up one day and it was time to deploy. When you mentioned your best friend, uh, that ends up being Stephen Mace from uh, your platoon, correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and for those who have heard this story before, you know, uh, Mace is one of the people who um, met their fate at, at cop Keating, but, um, you guys developed a really strong relationship in that time. And, and my understanding is you both sort of had the same sort of sense of humor. Correct. We're, you know, like I said, if, if you're a funny guy, you can get by with not being the best soldier. And, uh, that was like my go-to, but he was a good soldier and he was funny. So he, he had, he had a two for one gotcha. and I hated getting up every morning. And he would come to my door every single morning to make sure I was awake. Because if he didn't, I would have just slept in. And I'd crack the door open and he'd smoke a cigarette in my doorway while I got ready. And that was every morning for, you know, a year. It's not easy to find that, brother. No, it's not. It's not. And, uh, I mean, I I would tell you later in the story about, you know, he kind of said, I just remember one, it was like probably a month before I was about to deploy and, you know, everyone would always come to my room. That was the hangout spot. And we were playing Tiger Woods golf. And, like, he didn't get emotional. He was, like, he was always a jokester. And he just got teary-eyed. And he said, uh, you know, I would die for you guys. And I was like, okay, you know, maybe you've had a few too many. And and then he said, let's make a let's make a promise that if one of us doesn't make it back, we'll look over out for each other's family. And I was like, okay, man, you know, like <laughs> you're a good soldier. I'm the one, I'm the one that's going to get blown in half out there. So I was like, that's an easy deal for me. But, uh, you know, that was, if I had to pick a statement about the guy, it was the one when he had a moment of clarity and just knew, you know, we're getting ready to deploy. And I think maybe he looked inside himself and said, you know, whatever happens out there, you know, I'll, I'll do it for you guys. And it might've scared him, made him, made him realize he might not come home. But, you know, that was just the type of guy he was. Well, conversely, uh, as as I read it in Clint Romache's book, he talked to your ex-girlfriend, didn't he? Yeah, he, uh, I was calling her one time 
you know, and I was like, come on, we can, we can make this work. I sound like the saddest man alive. I want to let everyone know I'm married. And very, I <laughs> have a kid on the way, you know, I, I just imagine a lot of people. I'm not as pathetic sad. as I'm making this sound. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not like a sad man in a sad apartment. You know, I, I have a wonderful, a wonderful family now. Uh, but yeah, I, I called her and I was like, please let's make this work. And then he grabbed the phone and he, he, you know, he's trying to get out of my hand. He goes, here, let me talk to her. And I said, okay. And he, uh, he, he said, uh, he grabs the phone. And he goes, uh, stop breaking my friend's heart. You bitch. And he hangs up. <laughs> so you're doing the John Favreau and swingers thing, right? Where you're lonely in your dark apartment, sitting, pawning over this girl and he fixes it for you. And he fixed it pretty quick. Because after that, I don't. I, she wouldn't answer my phone call, so that made it real easy. <laughs> um, also, and I, I appreciate you know the sort of levity that we're having, but also you know it gives the audience a little bit of context into into Stephen Mace as far as uh, you had injured your ankle, and he was trying to get you hooked up with every girl in town. From what I from what I correct, read. correct. I think he thought it was funny to picture me because uh, I broke my ankle. I had like one of those big boots that you can't look sexy in, right? And I think in his mind, it'd be funny picturing me hooking up with all these chicks in a big boot. I, that's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> Didn't and work. Like he would, yeah, we would go out to like clubs. This is pre-broken ankle boot. And he would tell people that I have like HIV, like behind my back. Or he would say <laughs> like, you know, that, you know, whatever he could think of to like talk shit about me, and you know, in a funny way. Uh, he would say, but after I broke my ankle, he'd be like, he broke that jumping out of a helicopter. And I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And I think he just thought it was funny that I had this boot on. He was trying to get me to hook up with chicks in a boot. Did it ever work though? It did. Yeah. Score, score one for him. And, and uh, you know, uh, I'm glad we can laugh about this, but again, for the uh, civilians listening, who aren't military, you know, it just kind of brings to light the bond. Yeah, that sort of and develops. I took, I took the boot off. <laughs> I, mean, I, I took it off. I needed a little more mobility. I couldn't, you know. He talked me up so much, I couldn't just lay there in my boot. Gotcha. <laughs> All right, let's uh, fast forward here. Um, you guys find out you're going to Afghanistan when, and kind of what are your initial thoughts? Um, another weird moment. Uh. You know, we find out we're going to Afghanistan. Everyone's just kind of like, oh, kind of like nobody really went to Afghanistan. I mean, Kirk went to Afghanistan before, but that wasn't like a, you know, a place where we, like when we were thinking we were going to Iraq or, or, you know, any of that stuff, all the guys with deployments deployed to Iraq. And so mm -hmm. they would tell us stories, kind of like prepare us mentally. But when they said Afghanistan, I think everyone's face just kind of went blank, like, oh, shit, like we don't really you know, this is kind of outside our, our wheelhouse. And, uh, like a month before, or two months before we left, we had to go to this like briefing where they talked about Afghanistan, you know, and they gave us that classic, uh, look to your left, look to your right. Uh, one of you is not coming home. And, uh, I, I was like the only one in my whole row that came home. I was sitting there with Mace and Kirk and, uh, a heart, and Gallegos. And uh, that's just one of those moments where I remember looking around. And I was like, oh, I just always thought I would be the one, you know, to get popped. 
and uh i looked at everyone in that row and i was like oh god they're good soldiers i'm I'm the bad one i'm gonna get popped for sure um but they would say things like you know one in three of you not coming home uh you know they got chechnians all this stuff and we you know you don't know what to believe um but you know lo and behold it all came true I mean, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but since you bring it up, I'm, I'm curious when you reflect back on that, because you've said this multiple times that, you know, other guys were better soldiers than you were, and yet they're not here and you are. Uh, any survivor's guilt because of that? Um, Not so much survivor's guilt, but just like it's just kind of an unbelievable thing, you know? Right. Like, I, I'm sure someone who wins the lottery is like what are the chances you know like if you really sit and think like the 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 odds like you know i don't usually buy a lottery ticket it was just a whim um when i look at like how seasoned they were and how dedicated they were and you know they were in the gym all of them were always in the gym every day and i was just like sitting there and watching you know dvds it just it's just a moment where I always think to myself, they were really good soldiers and, and war war can just sometimes be a flip of the coin, you know. Yeah, well that's I mean, we talk about it all the time. The, just the randomness. Like there there's no mm-hmm. accounting for why the best soldiers don't make it and some of the lesser soldiers do. I mean, there's times you can do everything right in combat and come out on the wrong end, and there's times where you can make some of the worst tactical decisions alive. And end up oh, unscathed. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it speaks to the random nature of combat that you you truly never understand until you get there. Um, you, you, and people who've never been there, the civilians listening, we we can tell them this till they're blue in the face. But until you watch it happen in front of you, you know, it's that unbelievableness that you're talking about. Like mm-hmm. it, that's the part that's hard to believe because you've actually lived through it and survived. So uh, I was just kind of curious where you were with all that from the standpoint of, you know. Um, if any of that still emotionally kind of is tied to you a little bit. Yeah. I, I carried that weight for a long time and, uh, it, it really fucked me up for a long time. Um, just everything. And it, you know, I had to get, I, I had to take a lot of time to get myself straight to be able to kind of unload and unpack and understand, uh, what I was feeling and going through, but it, it took a while to kind of get through all that. But like I said, now, as I look back, it's just, like you said, the randomness of it, kind of odds, and uh, yeah, just the randomness. So as you guys start getting ready for Afghanistan, do you know where you're going? Do you know what your mission is? I mean, have you heard anything at this point? I kind of, you know, they would tell us like, they would tell us one thing, and then next week it would be a new thing, you know, they'd say, oh, we're going to, you know, a FOB, and it's going to be easy living. And then next week we're going to an OP and, and we're all going to die. And then the next week, you know, we're not even going. They have too many people. It was just, you'd hear so many things, so many different ways, so many times that you just disregard everything going into your ear. And I mean, it didn't really sink in where I was until I was putting on nods, getting ready to jump on a bird to go to Cop Keating. When, uh, when you first land at Cop Keating, what are you thinking? Like when you see where you are, <laughs> no, I can't see anything. And I'm well, already it's night, goofy. right? We've heard the story before. Yeah. You guys land at night, so you can't see, right? Yeah, and I'm already so goofy, anyways. And that you know the the LZ is nothing but rocks, so it's just all these like smooth rocks. 
and I'm falling all over myself. I mean, you have no sense of direction. And at the time, I thought it was just so dark. I thought it was just this darkness that I couldn't see the stars or anything. And then it wasn't until I got on the base and a door cracked that I could kind of look out. And it wasn't, it wasn't that the sky was so dark, it was mountains. Mm-hmm. And that's why I couldn't see the stars. I was just staring into the sides of mountains. When you wake up the next morning and you realize where you are or light hits, do, do you have a, a recognition of how bad the placement of Cop Keating is? You know, I'm like, because this is my first deployment, because I haven't seen anything, I'm like, oh, this is just what every cop must look like. We must, the U.S. military must just be really bad at putting things places. <laughs> you know, like, I, I just really thought, I was like, man, I can't believe, like, so many people deployed to these places, not knowing that this one was just very bad. And, uh, yeah, at first I was just like, I can't believe people fight in these things. But really, it was just us having to fight in that thing. Yeah, and it's funny because when I've talked to several people, some of them immediately knew that this place was a place where you were going to die. And mm-hmm. others sort of reacted like, you know, it was what it was. Like, it, it didn't bother didn't bother them one way or another. And again, yeah. I'm objectively looking at this from a place that I physically had never been to. But, you know, and, and granted, the, the lower enlisted ranks don't get the same training as officers do. But that position alone violates pretty much every principle of war that we abide by. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, and I think maybe, you know, we started to hear rumblings from, like, the higher-ups of, you know, how are we going to defend this? What's the plan, you know? And, and you start hearing this, and you're like, maybe, you know, you said there's, like, the people that knew it was bad, the people that thought they were going to die there, and then the third was me who was too stupid to come to either of those conclusions. <laughs> So I just kind of had to pick up on the cues. Of Ignorance everyone. is bliss, right? Oh yeah. I was living it up for those first couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, I just started, you know, hearing these, these, these whispers in the talk and, and among the hires of, you know, and, and sometimes you can just see someone's face. You know, we spent a year together getting ready for this deployment and you just started to see people's faces change. And, and I just remember like the first couple weeks, you know, if I had to go to the piss tubes, I would just walk to the piss tubes, but some people, you know, they would, they would walk with their head, you know, straight up in the air, looking at the top of these mountains, just waiting for something to come. And, uh, it would look like they were bird watching everywhere, but, you know, you start to pick up on these hints. You're like, man, first sergeant, he's acting kind of jumpy, you know, and the CO, he's not coming out of the talk. And, you know, the Afghan soldiers we have, they're not very good and they're kind of sketchy. And all these things, all these equations are starting to add up and you're like, oh, man, this is not good. Finally, that 120 GT score kicked in, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not smart enough to pick a better job. That's for sure. <laughs> so as you get on ground the first couple of weeks, operational tempo is what? How much enemy contact are you seeing? Uh, it was pretty, it, you know, I think they were testing. I think, you know, those fighters, we like to think that they're kind of like dumb cavemen and, and they just come out with a gun and shoot it. But these guys are smart. And I think they knew when a new group moves in, they're going to be jumpy on the triggers, you know, hyper vigilant and ready to fire. 
So, you know, they would come maybe fire off some pop shots and we would just blow the hillside to kingdom come. So I, I think it was like a lot of couple little probes, uh, just seeing if we were for real, maybe getting some eyes on us, but it was pretty consistent for that first month, uh, first month, month and a half. And then it just like, it really picked up. When, when you realize it's starting to pick up, um, are, are you guys doing anything different? Are you starting to react accordingly? Or is there a sense of, you know, um, that the big one, so to speak, is coming? You know, it's so weird. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to talk up Romache all the time, but by a month, two months before, you know, the, the attack, he was just like, I think we need, I think they're probing us. I remember we had, we were, everyone was having this meeting and he's like, we're going to, when they attack, start attacking, we're not going to go back hard. You know, we're going to, we're going to kind of feel it out and uh, try to mix it up a little bit. And that was like a month, a month and a half before. So definitely, you know, once again, not smart enough to know these things or experienced enough, but the people who, you know, were seasoned, were starting to pick up that something bad was coming. And uh, I remember we'd go on missions and we would under we'd find these like caches of like water bottles that they would dig into the ground and we're like you know once again not smart enough to realize that they're you know storing up for for what they're storing up but you know we would go and we'd tell the intel guy hey we found a bunch of water bottles and they'd be like oh okay thanks we'll mark it down did that bother you that they didn't have a better response yeah and i think I think what bothered the platoons and the guys on the ground the most was it felt like the commander was using his energy to kind of police us and not defend us. And, and the most classic story of all time is we had cameras that you could control from the talk and we were coming back from a mission and usually what they would do is use the cameras to like kind of watch our backs, you know, like get on the cameras to let us know, Hey, someone's coming up behind you, you know, heads up. But, uh, the CO was using it to check our uniforms and we came back from the mission and he had written down who wasn't wearing iPro on coming back. And, so we started to get this feeling like, I don't think he's taking this seriously. And I don't think they're using the resources they're supposed to be using. So we really got this feeling like, yeah, we're telling them what we're seeing, but that's, it's not ringing true to them. And I don't, I didn't know if maybe they didn't think something was coming or, you know, he just wanted to do his time and get out of there. But people are starting to catch on that, you know, that feeling of dread was sinking in and, and the higher ups weren't taking it seriously. So as you guys get closer to October uh, and you're realizing all this, uh, any conversations between you guys in the platoon about what might be awaiting? I mean, or, or no one ever just talked about it. I think we we're distracted. I think we've right around October is where, um, you know, they told us we were leaving and I think that fear was like, oh, don't worry, we're going to get out of here before anything happens. Right. You know, 
it really felt like whew, we, we really dodged a bullet by getting out of here, you know, cause it's not safe. It's not a good place to be. And, um, you know, Intel slip, uh, I remember one time there was a couple kids that had a digital camera and were taking pictures on the base. Like Afghan and, kids, you mean? Yeah. Okay. And we went and told, you know, we got the camera and gave it to the Intel guys. And that was one of those things where we're like, this is really weird. You know, they have a digital camera, you know, they barely have clothes on their back, but they have this digital camera and they're like, well, the pictures that, you know, they took pictures of like the, the Bobcat we had some of the buildings. And I think they gave them back the camera. I think they were like, Oh, there doesn't seem to be anything incriminating on here and gave them back oh, the camera. On, and really? I think a lot, I think a lot of those things that they were doing kind of gave us a false sense of security. You know, like if they took that camera and said, okay, we think that they're planning something. Well, then now we're back on, we're back on that kind of hypervigilance, but instead they would just dismiss everything. And I think it kind of instilled in us this idea that nothing was going to happen. Like, you know, the leadership was showing us that, you know, nothing to worry about. We're going to, we're going to get out of here and be done with it. That That's crazy. I mean, I can remember during a, my first deployment to Iraq, um, there was a, a raid that we went on um, and on the house that they went into, they found a hand-drawn map of our base with, you know, markings detailing this is the headquarters building. This is where they sleep. This is where they eat and everything else. And I remember hearing that. And then when we got back and that, that got around, like they tightened every security measure there was. Everybody start burning trash. Do not throw anything out. Like, you know, take mm-hmm. your name off everything. You know, whatever mail you get, burn burn the uh, the envelope and everything else. You know, like it, it was mm-hmm. it was just one of those things where that was enough to jar everybody like, holy shit. You know, I mean, it, this is not playing around time. This is not time to to act like everything is normal. Now, granted, that was 05 to 06. It was a, obviously a different world, especially in, in, in Baghdad back then. But yeah, that's just kind of disconcerting that that you had so many signals go up and, and all of them were continually ignored. Yeah. And, and you know, not to jump ahead, but and then after it's all said and done for the military to acknowledge that they did ignore those signs. Yeah, well, that, that's not any consolation. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make it any easier. Okay, night of October 2nd, what is your position? What are you doing? Are you sleeping? Are you on duty? I'm sleeping like a baby. and What you're good at, from what I understand. I was like the best sleeper. <laughs> uh, I had an old bunk, like when we first got there, and the wall had been blown out, and they just put up like plywood. And so it was like, it was the worst bunk. It was the worst bunk. And the guy beneath me was always fapping every night. So it was just shaking the bunk. Oh, it was awful. And then the, the fleas and ticks were getting on me. And about a month before that, uh, one of the beds opened up in another spot. Guy went on leave and I was like, I'm just taking his bed. So I got a good bed. So I was starting to get really good sleep uh, that last month. Did not last, though. <laughs> Didn't last. But uh, so got got a good sleep. Uh, heart was on the uh, LRAS-1. Mm-hmm. And Hart was kind of notorious for, he would always do this maneuver called the I have to poop maneuver. And so like 30 minutes before his shift was about to be up, you know, he'd come on the radio and be like, oh, guys, I'm not going to make it. Can you send my relief? 
and I was his relief, of course. So I was, you know, always the one. But uh, on that day, we were getting two hot chows, breakfast and then a dinner. And if you were on guard for breakfast, they had to bring it to you. So I was like, oh, this is perfect because I'll get out there early and then they'll have to bring you the food. So uh, I grabbed my magazine and headed out and I relieved hard about 15, 20, 30 minutes early. What time is this? Oh, man, I think that would have been like 530. I think switch was at six. Okay. So this would have been about, you know, like 535, uh, time frame. All right. And so you're in position. Let's fast forward to about three or four minutes before six o'clock. <laughs> yeah. Um, Did you have breakfast quiet. yet, by the way? <laughs> no, never. Okay. They never brought me. Never anything. brought it to you. Okay. Got it. Never brought me anything. Um, and uh, I just remember it was so quiet. Like, and I think, you know, maybe there were just so many bodies. It was like soaking up the sound or something, but it was like so quiet. And sometimes, you know, like I'd put the, the radio on down by my feet because I was sitting in the uh, the turret. I don't know why I didn't, I didn't turn on the radio. I didn't do anything. It just, it was like eerie, eerie quiet. And then that first volley came and it felt like it n- never ended. By the way, did you hear that the the Afghan National Police guy telling everybody that it was an attack was coming? Because I, I know that was reported and happened, correct? Correct. So that the night before, uh, Schultz, our intel guy, comes in and says, um, "Hey, don't let anyone in through the front gate." And that we're like, okay, that's kind of weird because you know some of the workers would come and some of the the A&A guys would come. And uh, so he told us not to let anyone in. And then Davidson was on uh, the front gate and called over the radio. Hey, someone's trying to get in. And we're like, what, you know, what the hell's going on? And it was the, it was the police chief. And he was coming to tell everyone, you know, Hey, I think something's going down. And even then, I mean, literal, you know, that's our ally. The guy stayed and died to fight, you know, the good fight. And even when he, you know, told us, you know, they didn't do anything about it. So once again, it was just one of those things where if, if the leadership would have been like, Hey, this is alarming. Hey, tell the guys something might be up. Then we would have, we would have interpreted it that way, but everything just gets dismissed over and over again. And it just lulls you into that security. And mm-hmm. and uh, I think that had a lot to do with what happened on the third. Especially with the specter of, of the base shutting down and you guys leaving soon. It's just a sort of mm-hmm. a race to the finish line. That's all your focus is. Um, yeah. When that, what direction are you facing when that first volley kicks off? So I was for, facing the switchbacks. Okay. So the diving board. Right. Switchbacks and diving board are, it's what they labeled for civilians listening. It's what they labeled as sort of uh, the mountains. Those were directly to the south. Switchback sort of was like a valley between two mountains coming down, and diving board was a just a huge tall mountain um, to to the south of where you are. So you are on Elraz one, looking south. Correct. Okay. And what do you see? Um, like flashes, <laughs> flashes. I, you know, you know when like uh, uh, the paparazzi mm-hmm. when taking they- pictures. When they're taking pictures, you know, I've only seen movies. No one's ever taken a photo of me. But, like, in the movies, they come out and it's just flash, 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 flash. 
it almost sounds like one sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just it just happened. And to my left kind of was the guard tower for the ANA. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a B-10 that they loved to fire. And, and LRAS-1 was like dead center for that, uh, for that B-10. And I looked over and there's two guys sitting in that guard tower and that B-10 hit and it just ripped. There was nothing. I just saw the debris and everything just poof. It was gone. Uh, and, it's, that's when I was, and that's when I was like, oh, it's, it's something's happening. Okay. Well, that's what I was going to add. Like, is that the first thing you know, that this is different than everything else? Yeah. And then uh, pretty shortly after that is when I started getting the the sniper rounds through my Kevlar. Okay. Um, how does a sniper round go through your Kevlar and you're still sitting here? Oh, I, I'm sorry. I need to, I need to, I need to uh, Amend elaborate. That? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the turret, the turret had um, kind of built a little uh, sort of circle around you, right? Yeah. It was kind of like a box, um, you know, just so there'd be cover so you wouldn't melt. Right. And then on the back of that box is a Kevlar blanket. It's just a Kevlar sheet. And that Kevlar sheet kind of went down to cover your back. And I heard it sounded like someone like slapping a carpet, you know, when they're cleaning carpets and they're right. slapping them. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, whap, whap, whap. And I don't know, my adrenaline was pumping. I really wasn't like putting one and one together. And I just turned around it. And all of a sudden these holes start, you know, the lights coming through these holes through that blanket. So luckily, I mean, I, I was able to get down on a knee in the turret to get down. And then, uh, then that's about when, uh, Jonesy and those guys came over. And what did they say to you? So Jonesy came over, he had poor Jones, you know, he's one of those, he's a go-getter. He's a good Southern kid. Um, and he's one of those guys I've, I've literally never seen afraid. And he just had a look on his face like, what the fuck is going on? And uh, I I started telling him that there was a sniper. You know, someone was shooting behind me. And before I even could finish my sentence, a rocket hits the corner of the building, just blows Jones away. And I I thought Jones was gone. And uh, I was shouting for him, I was shouting for him. And, and I just saw two boots sticking up in the air and knocked him, and knocked him down into a turtle ditch. And he popped up and he's like, it's, it's too hot. need to get out of here. And and they took off. And that was all within like the first 30 minutes of, uh, of, you know, first contact. Are you hearing about any casualties at this point in time? So at this point, uh, I, I, I mean, it's mostly calling on the radio, trying to get air support. Uh, that's what's going across the radios. Um, we lost contact with a mortar pit. We, it was a lot of comms went down. Um, but honestly, I don't even remember what was like going on in the radio. I was, <laughs> my mind was, my mind was on the trigger and, uh, they could have been saying anything. I don't think I would have heard it. Um, you re- you recognize the mortar pits down, you're getting shot at from all sides. You're being mortared. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you ever have a thought? I'm going to die right now. Oh yeah. I said a prayer. I said a prayer. I just, I I prayed for my family and I prayed, uh, you know, that God would take me when I die. 
and then and then I got my mind back on the game. But you know, I said my I said my piece, and I was I think I was ready, even though it was, it was still scary as hell. You know, at least I had that peace of mind. Uh, that first thirty minutes obviously goes through. Do you start to get a sense that might this might die down anytime soon, or you guys are just so fixed in the fight that you have no idea? Um, how much longer you're in for this whole thing? Um, I think I think the part where I didn't think it would ever end was uh, so Blue Platoon Barracks was against the El Raz, mm-hmm. and uh, they were on uh, you know the QRF. They would they would come out and support if there was combat, and uh, Scusa came out and he immediately got shot by the sniper uh i mean i couldn't even he he came out the door that i think the sniper probably had a beat on the door and he came out and and then scusa went down right in front of me and i was like the first person you know first american i saw die and i was just like this isn't gonna end you know and i think a lot of people were thinking the same thing too and uh it was just this feeling like oh well, I, I'm next, you know, I'm right beside him. I'll be, I'll be leaving soon. A- any thought of leaving your position for a better position? Um, no, I, I mean, I couldn't. So the truck we were in, like they weren't, they weren't maintained. So even if I wanted to like get the truck somewhere, um, later in the day, we wanted to move that truck and we got it to move about like four feet and the engine blew. So, I mean, it was it was do or die. That's that was gonna be my yeah, but my not grave. even not, not even get out and just run to the talk or anything like that, which you know wasn't far from El Raz One. I wasn't gonna leave. <laughs> I I may not be the smartest, but you know I wasn't gonna leave. Now, was that just because you were pinned down by sniper fire, or is that just a this is where I'm supposed to be? This is my position. I'm not gonna leave. I would say fifty fifty. I'd like to say one hundred percent. I'd like to tell everyone, you know, the reason I stayed and held my position was my infallible bravery. But I was like, okay, if I go out the side door and crawl into this turtle ditch, I know I can follow it around to the talk, you know. But I, I, I think I just was like, I can't. I think everyone that day, one of the reasons we made it is just because you, you kept saying to yourself, I can't let anyone down. You yeah. know, I can't. No, I can't stop the fight. I, I, I get that. I, I And again, there's part of me um, that never liked being pinned down when bolts are flying. Like I wanted mobility. I felt like it was my friend. Mm-hmm. I felt like if I could stay yes. on the move, I had a better chance to be alive at the end of it. Like just knowing in general, um, you know, the enemy can't shoot for shit, comparatively speaking to us. And mm-hmm. I'd rather take my chances as a moving target than a static one, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I got a confession to make. I actually got a twenty on my GT score. That was a twenty. Uh, no, I was. I, no, I'm just kidding. I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I wish that I had a lot of clarity on that day. Um, you know, I'm just. I, I always tell people, you know, you watch these movies of like seals and green berets. We were literally. I, I mean, I was a high school dropout. You know, most of us were just regular guys. We could have been like a garbage man. You know, six months before this, you know, I was, I was, a, I was twisting pretzels for God's sake. And now, 
Now I'm in the middle of a combat zone. You, you were twisting pretzels. Now you're a twisted pretzel, right? <laughs> now, well, I'm twisting something. And uh, I, I just thought to, you know, to myself, like, I, I don't, I don't know if I could run. I don't know if I can stay. It's just a million thoughts going through my head. So, you know, those, those guys, those Rangers and, and those guys, God bless them. I don't know how they do it. Uh, but, uh, I was, I was a twist, a pretzel twister that got stuck in a turret one day. That's, that's my military story. Right. Um, so an hour into this thing, uh, there's enemy inside the wire. Do you see Mm -hmm. any of them? So at this point, everything's happening on, so now I'm not very good at memorizing this stuff. So if, if the switchbacks are South, it'd be everything on the West side was kind of collapsing. So over by the mortar pits, the front gate, yep. um, all that. But all the Afghans had ran, run. They had to run past me because I think they that the um, the insurgents were trying to get in through their side. And in the video, you know, I think you can see some of the A and A guys cheering them on, but they couldn't get through because that's where the that's where that first fire was. So I didn't see anyone come in the gate, thank God. Um, but I saw a lot of ANA run the opposite way. And that's when uh, the Latvians were, you know, screaming to, you know, hold your position. This is your country. They were trying to get them to stay, but they just, they scattered. And like a couple of them were hiding by me for a while. And it got to the point where it's like, I don't know who's ANA and, and who would be coming in the wire. And, uh, it was a scary thought that I was just going to have to start because I had my M4 up on the turret as well, pointing at the ANA side. And uh, I was like, oh, God, I'm going to shoot the wrong person. But luckily they didn't get in on my side. Um, do you get a sense when there, there's enemy inside the wire? Like for a guy who a moment ago was saying a prayer to be alive that, oh, my God, it's gotten even worse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember uh, talking to Larson. And he, he told me that they were all, they all got together because uh, he was stuck in that Humvee with Mason and Carter. And uh, they're like, we're going to get to the river and we're going to float down to, you know, so we can get to safety. And I think everyone in, in their head was kind of thinking, if I'm the only one alive, <laughs> you know, what, uh, what's my plan to get out of here? But I was, I was kind of stuck where I was because I was surrounded by fire and then, you know, the front gate. So, well, the, you know, the way to the front gate, but I, I think everyone, you know, every, everyone we talk about it, we're all like, yeah, this is the part where I thought I was done. This is, this is when I thought it was over for me. So at this point, I think everyone, everyone's feeling it, you know, go down the back of their neck. So when Sergeant Clint Romache starts his push to take the base back, are you aware of that's going on? Yeah, I was his first stop. <laughs> well, second stop, because he got blown up first. Okay. So what did he so, say to you? Uh, uh, we're all going to die. And he smiled at me, and I know there was blood in his mouth. He looked so gross. He had he had got blown up by the generator and I, and put on this, like, half-ass kind of, like, wrap around his arms. <laughs> They're all bloody. And, you know, I didn't know what was going on because my radio went down. I think it got took a round. And, uh, he was like, he came running up to the truck and he was holding like an A and a sniper rifle. 
And I was just like, what the hell is going on on the other side of this base that he's coming with a sniper rifle? And, uh, you know, he came over and he's like, uh, how's it going? And I was like, you know, I got a sniper behind me. And he's like, well, I'm going to see what I can do about that. And he started shooting at, you know, exchanging sniper fire with the guy behind me. And then he's like, I think you should be good. And he took off. Pretty amazing, huh? <laughs> wow. Like, it, it was almost when he left, I was like, does that really happen? You know, is this, am I bleeding out somewhere? And this is like a <laughs> weird image I'm having right now. But, uh, yeah, he came and and left in the same wind. And so do you see him again at any point during the day while while the major fighting's going on? Um, towards the, no, cause I, I spent most, the, almost the whole day in the turret. I think it was like 13 hours. I was, I was in it. How much, so, how much shooting are you doing? I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> I mean, like a whole, lot. Yeah. I was laying down fire about the whole time. Are, are you running out of ammo at any point? So, uh, pretty quickly after Romache came, that's when the push happened to get to the ammo depot. Um, we had filled that whole Humvee with, it was like one giant link of Mark 19 ammo. It had to have been like over a thousand rounds in there. Is that what you and, were firing? Yeah, it was a Mark 19. Oh man, that sounds like, like outside of getting shot at back, but that still sounds like fun. Oh, it was, it was a blast. It was a blast. <laughs> it's people who are like, they're like, you should see if they'll name it after you. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that's how it works, but, uh, uh, yeah, it was a Mark 19, and then when they got to the ammo depot, uh, that's when they started running ammo to me, and uh, it was it was non you know they were coming full blast. For the civilians, listen, a Mark 19 is just a it's a machine fed belt fed not machine fed belt fed uh, uh, grenade launcher. So it's just poof poof, and just watching explosions go up all over the place. It's it, it's a lot of fun. I mean, when no one's shooting back at you, and you know, yeah, it's it's a hoot, and uh, uh, it arcs. <laughs> So you, it's, you lob them. Yeah. So if you like trajectory, it's a lot of fun. Uh, are you able to be effective, do you feel like? Yeah. Yes, very. Uh, well, so I was able to kind of like keep the switchbacks clear, um, which is what I was focusing on. And then because I was catching fire from the diving board, um, but it was kind of hard to get the rounds around the because you know, once again, it lobs. So you're lobbing. So you're almost, kind of walking you know, things in, right? You're walking them in, uh, but it's so high up, you know, the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. You just can't get a good, great angle on it. And uh, I think they, they were able to kind of see me walking them up. And so they, you know, they were firing a lot from up there, but uh, I think I was keeping them from coming into the base through the switchbacks. When is the first time you get to get out of the truck? Uh, that night. <laughs> okay, so you're there the whole time for 13 hours. All right. The so, whole time. Uh, I mean, are you, is there a point where you're wondering where the hell is the air support? So I was doing, yeah, yeah. Because when the first air support came, they got shot and, like, left pretty quickly. And I remember they were doing gun runs in the – the spent casings were falling on top of the little canopy. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, it was like heavenly rain. I was like, Oh, thank God. It was just such a blessing. And then it was just gone. And, uh, 
so after my radio my first radio got fucked up they brought me another they just grabbed a radio and it was on the fires net the fires net so i was listening to the birds kind of them trying to get um more air support uh but i couldn't really hear what was happening inside the base but i knew uh i knew they were trying to get air support out to us but it just was it felt like forever and it just felt like it wasn't going to get there in time when do you know that uh the base is taken back like romache finished what he had done and that you guys got control of the base again um raz came to my truck and i asked him i said who did did we lose anybody or i got it mixed up stanley Sergeant stan came to my truck and like got in and he was like hey you did a hell of a job you know we're getting we're getting this back and i said do we lose anybody and he just like sighed and he said you know like he's like just just keep it up and he left and at that point i was like we lost some people so there was that dread uh, but there was that feeling, like you said, you know, we're taking it back. And then Raz came later and started telling me about the guys we lost. And it was then, I think when, when he was telling me about that was when things were starting to calm down. And, uh, Do you we remember what time to... that was? Uh, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Could have been 20 light years from 6 a.m. on October 3rd. But right. uh when, when back up when when he told you you lost some guys and he kind of did the sigh and walked away, who was the first name you thought of? Mace. And you're Mace. wondering at that point if he's okay. Absolutely. Um, did you? I mean, did you call anybody in the radio to ask? Or, I mean, did you even bother to think to do that, or you, there was still too much going on? There was. Uh, I'm a very superstitious man, and I didn't want to jinx anything. And and. Uh, I thought if I didn't ask, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to hear it, you know? Right. Don't ask a question you don't want to answer to. 100%. So, uh, when Raz came and told me, I literally was just, and, and Daniel Rodriguez, who you, you interviewed before, mm -hmm. like he was like one of my best friends, you know, before we deployed, we, we had gone down and spent a weekend in, uh, Denver with, thompson and some of the other guys and i remember i was like they told us that they had a casualty up at the mortar pit and they were going to bring him down and i remember just thinking to myself like i hope it's not rod you know i hope it's not my friend and but then i was like they're all my friends <laughs> you know it's like right. there's no there's no good name there's no good name that they're going to bring you 100 percent. so uh and that's how i felt about everything and then, of course, you know, with with Mace, it was it was just a double whammy. Um, uh, I, I want to get to that moment because it doesn't come mm -hmm. until later for those who are hearing this for the first time. But when he comes back and starts telling you names, do you remember who he told you first? Uh, Kirk. Okay. And uh, so, uh, and the reason I like, ask is because he wasn't the first one to be killed. Um, correct. Timeline wise, Thompson was the first one. He was one of the first Correct. during the first initial volley. Um, he mm. was he, he was killed at the mortar position. So, um, but you hear Kirk, and then what's you know, what's that emotion like? Is it a ton of bricks? So, it it was weird because like I, I you know I I've been kind of harping on for this interview. I uh, he was such a good soldier, 
and you're like you almost can't believe it like like they like if they killed the main character of your favorite show you're like why would that why would he die he's like the best character so it was kind of shock and disbelief too almost like maybe i misheard him maybe this is you know it's somebody else uh but you know he was really close to jones and knight and when they went on leave like he kind of took me under his wing and you know he needed he needed somebody to mentor he was just the type of guy that like always had to be teaching you something and uh we built uh a new phone and computer area so it was like i i and we hadn't really got along too well before that and it was just weird because you know we just really made that connection and then to hear his name like that it was like how is this happening so fast when he starts giving you more names does the gravity of this whole thing start to kind of emotionally take over for you or you're able to sort of process it and just put it discarded for now um i think at first i was able to put it in the back because it didn't feel real like nothing felt uh grounded and i mean it was like kirk and gallegos and hart and these are like the biggest toughest guys we got you know mm-hmm. and you know luckily raz you know he told me he's like you know we we believe in you we trust you you know keep it up but it nothing really registered for a while i think not even in, until the morning after and, and you open your eyes and you're like oh that was all real <laughs> that, that really happened and uh i was on the I was on the radio when Hart, you know, came over and said he, you know, he had an RPG aimed at him and you could just hear the rocket fire and the explosion. And then there was nothing. And so, I I mean, I assumed that we were losing people, but I just kind of held out hope. And, and when he told me, you know, it, it hit and then I think I tried, tried to disbelieve it. Does any of that contribute? And I mean, it's just timeline wise. When you're hearing that, does it make you feel more like I'm going to die here? Or are you at the point when you're hearing it where things have died down enough that you feel somewhat secure? I, after we, so after the rain came and kind of put the fires out, I, like an act of nature, it was like a weird. I don't know, phenomenon that this base is on fire. And then this rain just came right when we like kind of took everything back and then the rain let up and it was like shiny, shiny. It was shot, you know, the sun was shining and it was, it was warm and it, you know, physically and mentally there was that calm. And then when you heard about the guys we lost, you know, you're like, well, we're lucky we made it. And, and then they came over the radio and they said that, uh, they called their mule mole and they're trying to get, you know, more people to come fight. And I think in our minds, we're just like, how many more, you know, right. like what's, what's the second wave going to look like? So yeah, there was a sense of peace in the sense, like I thought I was going to die a few hours ago and, and kind of the discomfort of knowing that it's not over and you don't know what, what they're bringing next. You said you spent the better part of, of 13 hours uh, in that truck. When, mm-hmm. when you get out, 
of that truck? Um, what's the first thing you do? Where do you go? Uh, so just pissing everywhere. <laughs> I I'd held it in for about 13 hours. Oh geez. Yeah. And then, uh, Raz came by like once again, Raz, like big brother type guy. He, I think he maybe saw on my face that, you know, I needed, I needed a breather. I need to take a knee. So he took me to the ammo, uh, ammo storage where we had all the ammo pit. And he said, Hey, just stay here. And, uh, and, uh, you know, guard the ammo pit. I was like, perfect. You know, I'm just literally going to sit here. And then, uh, first sergeant came with Jones and he grabbed me and said, Hey, I need you for something. And he took about four of us, uh, to the Shura building. And he said, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna send our heroes home. And I remember thinking in my head, I was like, awesome. We're getting out of here. And then, and then like they turn a flashlight on, I could just see all the body bags behind him. And I was like, Oh, you know, we're not the, we're not the heroes. We're sending, you know, these guys home. I mean, and, uh, did you ask where Mace was at that point? So when I was at the ammo pit, uh, and I was talking to Raz, I, I said, what's up? And he told me that Mace is talking and, you know, they gave him, they gave him blood and he's going to make it. And he asked me if I wanted to go see him. And like I said, I, I'm just a superstitious type of guy. I'm like, no, whatever's working is working. I don't want to mess it up. And uh, so the, the the helicopter that came and got him, I think somebody else, uh, the med, I think it was like the med chopper, chopper or whatever, came and got them and took them already. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that I, have to, that I had to deal with that I never got to go and, and tell them to hang in there. But, um, well, yeah, that was, that I mean, was it. Obviously, you're upset because you didn't see him, but that you going there wouldn't have changed the outcome, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. But like I said, I was superstitious, so sometimes I felt like, oh, maybe it would have tipped the other way. But like you said, in, in the real world, it wouldn't have changed anything. I mean, it, it was there a sense that you missed an opportunity? I mean... Uh, because I, I mean, think about it. Let's let's sort of role play for a minute. You're going to tell him, "Hang on," but you're not thinking that's the last time you're ever going to see him, regardless. Correct? Yeah, one hundred percent. So uh, I just, I'm after, just kind of processing the emotions with you here. Yeah, and 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 after he left, I mean, just to tell you how sure I was, um, I knew he'd go to Germany or you know wherever they send people. So uh, I got his backpack off his bunk and I, and I filled it with all his stuff so I could make sure, you know, it got sent to him wherever he went. So, uh, one of the good things is his mom told me, you know, that they were so happy and lucky they got his computer and stuff. And I, you know, I got to tell her, you know, I grabbed that to give to him. So I really thought, you know, he was going to go somewhere. And I mean, my first thought was I, I don't want to be, him to be bored when he's there so i just made sure uh to get all the stuff for him when do you hear ultimately that that mace didn't make it so that night uh went to bed just exhausted jones and i i think took probably about like six of the guys five, four or five maybe of the bodies and loaded them and it and 
it was really traumatic. Uh, one of the bodies wasn't, a, they, you know, they didn't have enough bags. And uh, the whoopee that was on top of them blew off. And, it, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, one of those things that Jones and I always, always have to live with of, of what we saw. And and getting to bed was just, I don't know, it was it was a miracle. It was just pure fatigue that, our, you know, my body shut down. And I got up the next morning and, and I walked to my bunk and I'm getting ready. And uh, Avalos came up to me and he said, I don't know if you heard, but Mace didn't make it. And I think just everything, you know, from when Raz told me about who didn't make it to just being in that turret for as long as I was and everything just hit me at once. I just collapsed. I just couldn't stand. I couldn't move my body. And I was just, I was just bawling. And uh, it wasn't until Jones, Jones and Knight came and got me that I could even get up. What did they say to you? Um, they got me up, and uh, Romache had a meeting, and kind of pulled us all into a circle. I just remember, like, I couldn't, I could barely sit, I could barely keep myself upright, and. You know, Romache is not an emotional guy by any means, but like he said, you know, Mace didn't make it, but we're going to get the rest of you guys home. He's like, I promise we're going to get the rest of you guys home. And it was just, it was just so much exhaustion. And, you know, we went to bed having all that happen. We just thought, you know, the worst was behind us and it was just another body blow and just like sucked the spirit out of us. And I had walked out and uh, Schultz, the Intel guy, had raided the uh, the Haji store. And they had these like knockoff T-shirts that said Afghan commandos, like everyone wore them. And he came up and he gave one to me and he said, uh, hey, make sure you give this to Mace. You know, wherever, when you find out where he's going, send this to him. And I just remember I was like, he didn't make it, man. And it's just one of those things where you're like, the bad news comes to you, and then you got to keep giving it on and on. And uh, and just had to move through it all. And it was tough. It was real tough. But, uh, you know, accolades to everyone. You know, no one, no one quit. No one couldn't go on. We all moved together, and, and we got out of there. Well, one, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend, man. Um, outside of, you know, somebody who wears a uniform as well and understanding the nature of combat and, and loss that comes with it. Um, when it's friends, it's you're, when it's somebody that you, you love outside of the uniform, it's it's different, right? It just mm -hmm. it just hits different. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody wants to lose anybody we work with. As you said, the, the list of names was never going to be good, regardless mm -hmm. of what you thought of them professionally. Um, in those moments, everybody needs each other and it's the only way you all survive. But again, when it's somebody that you consider more than just a, a coworker, it's a friend, it, it's, uh, it's doubly tough to deal with. So I'm sorry for the loss of your friend, um, for, for everybody else listening, the, the loss of Mace in general, and everybody sort of echoed this, all of your platoon mates have echoed this. It was, it was particularly tough, you know, for, for two reasons. One, I mean, he had fought so hard to survive the whole day. I mean, he was injured you know, shortly after the attack initially happened, um, managed to survive the whole day, get medevaced out, um, and then ultimately did make, because you think once you get medevaced, everyone's going to be fine, right? For the most part, everybody mm -hmm. survives those moments. 
And then other than that, you know, as as you've told us several times over, I mean, he was such a well-liked kid, you know, like everybody loved the guy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he was so young, you know, he was younger than me. I think he was maybe 21, 22 when we deployed. And, uh, I mean, just a kid should have been in college, you know, should have been, uh, getting spanked at a fraternity or something, you know, instead of, uh, fighting like he did, but, you know, he chose, he chose the uniform over all of that. And, uh, he was one of the bravest people I ever met. Did you, you obviously got a chance to meet his family afterwards? Uh, yeah. So I kept my promise and I moved in with his family. Uh, Wait, you, moved, you moved in with them? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't uh, part of the promise. It was take care of your family. It wasn't move in with them. Yeah. Well, I didn't have any money or, a, or any prospects in life. So <laughs> <laughs> it was, <laughs> you know, I, I talked to Vanessa, his mother, who's probably the nicest, sweetest woman in the whole world. And, and it really, you know, Mace in his infinite wisdom kind of knew we needed each other to heal. And, uh, I, I moved in and rent free and I had his old room, which was kind of weird, Yeah. but, uh, I went to school and, and I graduated from there and went to school in Georgia. So, um, living, living there was really kind of those first steps of me repairing myself because I was not good after I left. And, uh, it took a long, it was a long road to, you know, get to where I am now. I know some of these conversations may be, you know, pretty personal, but what sort of talks did you have with, with, uh, Mace's mom? Um, she wanted to know about who he was as a soldier. And I wanted to know who he was like, you know, as a son, outside, <laughs> as a son. Um, so we got to share that. And I think, you know, we both loved him so much that he kind of wanted that full picture of him. He wanted to know who he was completely. And, and we were able to give that to each other. Um, and it was really, it was really therapeutic. And, and even now, uh, I had my wedding in November and she came and, uh, you know, we put up pictures of the guys and I had Mesa's picture up at her wedding and, and she just came and, and we cried and, you know, we said we miss them and, and then we had a great day. That's great, man. I mean, it's uh, it's heartbreaking stuff, man. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've, I've talked to a bunch of Gold Star moms, and you know, that's that's a pain that no one can ever understand unless you're a parent and a mother, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, it's a, it's a different level of pain for guys like us. Um, but you know, when you talk about the catharsis um, that you were able to get from that experience. Was there a seminal moment where you felt like you realized it was going to be okay? Did, did his did mom reassure you of anything? Was there the sort of, for lack of a better term, the cliched talk of, you know, you have to carry on for Steven, like you have to, you know, um, continue to keep his memory alive kind of deal? Um, no. And, and I say that was the beginning of my healing, but uh, I kind of, you know, now through lots of, of thinking of myself, you know, working to become a therapist, um, one of the things about the military is, is connections, right? Like mm-hmm. you have to be weary of these connections where 
You know, you love the person beside you like a brother. You would die for them. But you can't get close enough that if they, you know, you lose them in battle, that you can't go on. So there's this weird kind of juxtaposition where you need to be close to people so you can fight together, but not so close that you get too attached to them. And I had a real hard time kind of staying attached to people. And uh, after two years, I got my associate's degree. And I think, you know, just mentally, uh, I wasn't ready to be close to anybody. So I had moved to Georgia to complete my degree. And it really wasn't until probably last year that we both had that talk where we could, you know, sit down and be like, this is what it's about. You know, we both love them and, and we're both better for, uh, for having met each other. It's an incredibly interesting and lucid revelation that in all the stories I've been telling on this podcast that no one's ever mentioned. You have to be close enough to these guys to love them, to want to protect them and give up your life for them. But you can't be that close that you can't sort of learn to let them go. Mm -hmm. Right? Like that's, that is, that is, I mean, that's some deep stuff. Like I'm processing that right now as we're doing this (laughs) in ways I don't think you can understand. Like that, that hit me, man. I mean, I'm being completely raw and honest with you. I mean, Mm -hmm. it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. How can you be that close to somebody um, that you'd give up your life for them, but yet you have to understand the process of letting them go? Mm -hmm. I mean, things that you love close and hold dear, you don't ever want to let go. That's the point of holding them close. That's the point of getting them close is that you don't have to let them go. Man. Absolutely. And, And I'm telling you, you know, you're talking about it hitting you. When I kind of figured that out, uh, for myself, I mean, it's just like, it was an avalanche, you know, because I carried that to every single relationship after the military where I can get close to you. I can love you. I can care for you, but I, I wouldn't let myself get close enough that I would be hurt too much if, you know, this didn't work out. And it, it's a protective, it's a behavioral protective maneuver. And, uh, at the time I didn't, I couldn't identify it. And it was, it was really ruining my life and, and making it difficult, uh, for me to, you know, move on from everything that happened. Yeah. But see, I mean, it's almost like in love and in relationships, I understand that, right? Like I, I get mm-hmm. that because, you know, in, in love and in relationships, we don't breed the idea of, you know, it's about the person next to you, right? Like we do in the mm-hmm. military. Everything, the buddy system, you know, never leave a man behind. You know, never leave a fallen comrade. Like those things are, are, are things that are part of our, our ethos as mm-hmm. people in uniform. Like it's never – in your marriage, it's never leave, never leave your wife behind, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> no, no, it's just assumed that you guys are always going to be together – but they yes. have to beat it into you in the military. And so I understand what you're saying from a relationship standpoint. And I definitely understand how it could affect you going forward. I guess what is still sort of, you know, mind blowing to me is the idea that no one's ever talked about that concept in mm-hmm. the military. Love oh, these yeah. people to give your life up for them, but learn how to let them go when they're gone. Yeah. I, mean, it, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to need a therapy session after this. <laughs> well, Meet up with me in about a year. Okay. 
maybe I can get my certification. Uh, yeah, but, I, could, uh, I could be a good case study for you because I'm I'm pretty messed up from top to bottom. Um, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> no, but I, again, I just you know, I mean, it's it's, and even for civilians listening, like when you say the two sentences next to each other, it just doesn't make sense. They don't go side by side. But mm-hmm. yet, in the military world, it makes complete sense. I've just never had mm-hmm. anybody actually say it to me where it resonated. Um, yeah. But I'm not the best listener. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. <laughs> um, so th- th- that said, uh, wow. Of the rest of the guys that are still around, what's your relationships like with those guys? Awesome. Awesome. Um, and And that's another thing that, uh, anytime I talk to people, they're like, Oh, that's incredible. You know what happened? And the first thing I tell them is, yeah, we haven't lost anyone since. And to me, that's, that's the, the even, you know, the, the other victory the, the triumph yep, is we, we don't let anyone disappear. And, you know, I'm sure you have lots of military buddies and, and, and they just disappear and, and maybe they're not, you know, dead or, or anything, but they just retreat to this place where it feels a lot safer than, than out, you know, socializing. And, and we just don't let it happen. You know, we're blowing up phones. We're, we're organizing things. You know, if someone thinks something's going on with somebody else, they will let, and they don't want to talk to me. I'll let Jones know and Jones will call him. So we have such a tight knit kind of uh, little community uh, uh, of our platoon and some of the other guys that were there. And, and I, you know, truly couldn't ask for more and, 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 you know, not losing anybody after has just been such a blessing that no one else has had to kind of have to deal with that on top of what they're dealing with. Before I ask you about the movie and, and, uh, Romache's medal of honor, um, some of your, your fellow platoon mates were very, um, clear about their feelings on leadership and decisions mm-hmm. made by leadership and, uh, all that um, mm-hmm. you strike me in the time that we've been talking as somebody that rolls with the flow of those sort of decisions and doesn't really question them. Um, whether it was at the time or now, after you've had some moments of reflection, uh, do you feel like your leadership did what they were supposed to on in, in those moments and on that day? Obviously at our level. Yes. At our, you know, with what we could control and, and, you know, our platoon, but, um, I think, you know, I don't know if anyone's else said this. I think some of those guys should be in jail. I really do. I think that if you are so blatantly ignoring the rules, if I was a manager at a warehouse and somebody said, Hey, the forklift's acting up, I'm like, Oh no, don't worry about it. Just drive it as fast as you can. And you plow into a, a group of, you know, fourth graders, I I'm going to be held accountable and there's going to be, you know, some consequences, but for some reason, the military, you know, life doesn't carry the same weight, you know, and the loss of life wasn't enough to get people punished. I mean, they got letters of reprimand that were sealed, you know, their names never became public. And I think a lot of people got away with a lot at the expense of, you know, us having to spill blood for it. Well, one, I would say, I agree with your sentiment that the, in actuality, like, yes, we value life in the military, but at the end of the day, it's Zach Hope is commodity, like specialist. Yeah. Here's the line, paragraph and line number you're in. 
And if that goes away, we just put another one in there, right? Like that's, and, and again, that it's the same thing for me. It's the same thing for everybody else. We are all pieces of the puzzle that are movable on the board, right? I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. that's a fact of the matter. Um, and so there is a sort of transactional relationship with death that the military has by nature of the business that we do. Um, that's not, that's not speaking for the, you know, the army or department of defense or anything. That is just kind of the nature of what happens, especially when you've been in combat for 20 years now. So mm-hmm. there, there's, there's no getting away from that. Um, but, but to the point of accountability, uh, which as a leader in this organization, someone who still wears the uniform, uh, I, I get very frustrated when accountability is sort of pushed to the side on a variety of different topics, most of which we've discussed here on this podcast, but on, mm-hmm. but any, on any topic, whether it's mistreatment of soldiers, whether it's hazing, whether it's sexual assault, sexual harassment, whatever it may be, all those things. And even this, that yes, we, we need to do a better job of, if you're going to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs sort of logic in, well, it's just combat. So to speak. you know, like that, mm-hmm. that, that's not the justification to not hold people accountable. Um, and, and at the end of the day, if we're not holding the leaders accountable, I'll still never understand how we have the gall to try to sit there and hold the lower enlisted accountable. 100%. And, and I think civilians are getting a real look at what was going on behind the scenes and, and the gear, how the gears move with everything that's been going on in Fort Hood. Mm-hmm. I think really yeah. kind of pop, pop the hood on, on what's been going on and how the military handles things. I think, uh, the sexual assault thing is it needs to be addressed. I think across the military, I think it's getting out of hand, and it's not being handled like it should be. And and that's because we, we don't kick anybody out. One hundred percent. That's. I mean, I said that in a meeting that we had a you know a training meeting. We had a, we had a sharp class come in, and I flat out said the re, we, we don't kick anybody out. I don't want to rehabilitate rehabilitate people. I don't want to reassign people. I don't want to give people second chances. I want you out. I want you out. I'm not, whatever. I don't have to ruin your life in the civilian world, but I don't need you part of my organization. End of discussion. Period. Absolutely. That, and, and that's what we don't do, in my opinion. That's what we don't do enough of and why we still have this problem because we want to rehabilitate people. No, I, I don't need to re- rehabilitate an asshole. Period. Because you know what? Mm-hmm. I get a rehabilitated asshole and that doesn't help me either. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, you know, especially with, you know, cause I, I've been out for a while. I don't know how it is exactly. Things may have changed, but like I said before, that whole Fort Hood thing just kind of like opened the door to a lot of people's eyes of, of what goes on behind the scenes. I mean, there were soldiers who were missing for months and they, they didn't look for them. And then they found their bodies looking for other bodies. So it's just absolutely uh, the accountability needs to be there. Let's uh, move on to the, the the book, The Outpost and the movie. Um mm-hmm. How much were you talked to about it? Um, what were your thoughts on it? I mean, obviously you've seen it. So um, understanding that Hollywood takes a certain amount of liberties, what were your yes. feelings? What were your feelings on the movie? Um, obviously very torn. I think I think I had to weigh how much do I care about the accuracy of our story being told mm-hmm. versus how much do I care that people are are finding out that this happened. Uh, so it's kind of a tough spot to be in, right? Like I want people to know what happened, but I want people to really know what happened. You know, I, I, the, the idea in the movie of them stretching it out for, you know, 
what in real in reality was years and years of the outpost yes. being developed mm-hmm. was kind of condensed to an hour and a half of all these characters kind of just periodically being knocked off and then moving on um and that's not at all what happened no so yeah and again here's how i'm with you 100 percent. i'll judge every military movie off the accuracy of combat period right mm. like that's that's the top bar for me um because if you can't re- recreate the experience of combat then then what are you doing right like i mean you draw up romance movies to recreate the experience of falling in love. <laughs> it's the same thing. Draw up military movies about combat to recreate the experience of combat that's authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll say this much for it. And and we had the director, Rod Lurie, on. Um, and, and, and I will say simply, I know that I feel like a battle depiction scene is accurate when sort of I just sort of get that little nervous, anxious feeling and I could feel my, my blood pressure start to tick up a little bit, right? Like mm-hmm. if it does that for me, I feel like I'm in a place where they're close enough to simulating what the experience was like. And, and yeah. the actual battle scenes, the beginning of it, I get that. Like I get that little, uh, call it a rush of adrenaline or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I, that I sort of felt, for me at least. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I think the, I, I usually feel that. I think, when people ask me what do you what was the best movie I ever saw to simulate combat, I'm a, I'd like to hear yours as well. But I always say I think Black Hawk, Black Hawk Down. Down. Really yep, but <laughs> I think it's I think it's the best. Ridley depiction. Scott did an amazing job with that. Oh, I mean, it's so good. And and the fact that the grenades don't burst into flames is probably like he should get an award just for that. Yes, there are no flames um, with the grenade. <laughs> yes. Um. So for this, yeah, I think. I think I was taken out of it because I was there. And so I would see a scene of something happening and I would be like, Oh, that happened over there. So I think there was a little bit of disconnect in that sense. But as far as like the, I think the thing that captured the best is just the chaos of battle Mm -hmm. and people just run, you know, like in the movie, like people are just running and falling down and, you know, you know, getting to cover shooting as fast as you, you know, uh, uh, putting the aggressive uh, light, laying some fire. I think they do that really well. Um, so, yeah. And, and I had talked to Rod Lowry as well. And he's, you know, he seems like a pretty stand up dude. So uh, definitely trust him with, with what he did and how he depicted combat. Um, as far as what uh, you talked to Jake Tapper about the book, I don't know if you read it or not, but did you feel like he did you guys justice as well? I didn't actually read the outpost. Because I'm not very smart. It was a big book, so I just <laughs> not enough pictures. <laughs> not enough pictures. Um, Is there a diorama or a pop-up version of this I can get? Yeah. Can I get somebody to read it to me? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was really weird because you know after the battle, uh, got back in 2010. I was still in for like two more years, and there was nothing. You know, there was no one came up to us and was like, "Wow, that's incredible." You know, you guys are at the outpost. You know, we didn't we didn't get any special recognition or anything when we got back. No one called us to, like, interview us or anything. And Jake Tapper was the first one. And in my mind, it was going to be like a Yahoo article type thing. And that really started kind of, uh, you know, from it going to nobody asking us anything to being a movie. Really weird that you picked Yahoo as the reference, by the way. 
Yeah, I, I read Yahoo and everyone makes fun of me, so I used <laughs> Yahoo. I mean, I have a Yahoo. I still use it as my email, so people kind of laugh at me, but I just, you know, like he didn't yeah. mention like the New York Times or like Newsweek or Time Magazine. You mean you went with Yahoo. Not No disrespect to anybody who works for Yahoo. Yeah, listening, but I'll defend good. Yahoo with my dying, last dying breath. <laughs> when you hear that uh, that Clint Romache is going to be uh, a recipient of the Medal of Honor, what was your, your thoughts and your reactions? I was like, cool, because I was living outside D.C. anyway, so it was a short drive. So mm-hmm. that part really made that me part happy. Helps, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I was like, um, are Clint Romache? Like, is there a, another one or something? Um, because no one really told us what we did was, like, impressive, I think, if that makes sense. Like, no one came up to us and was like, I can't believe you guys did that or survived. Like I said, it was kind of in the back you know, no one was really asking about it. No one was putting it out there. And I just remember, like, even being there, I read, like, everything Romache did. And I was like, holy shit, I didn't even know this happened, you know. And, and you know, reading the orders and stuff, the part about him coming to me in the beginning was in there. And I was like, I, I just can't even believe he did everything he did. And, uh that's when I, that's when, you know, people started to ask us about things. I think the book came out around then. Um, and I was just like so damn proud uh, of that guy and, and then President Obama having to stand up and, and clapping for us. It was, that was really probably the highlight of, you know, everything I did in the military. It's amazing how the guys that he led expressed such pride for him. It's almost like you guys are like the pride. When I hear you, all you guys have used that word and and it, and it sounds very parental the way you talk (laughs) about it. Like, you know, I was so proud of him, you know, like Mm -hmm. almost like you all expected it from him and, and you knew he would do this and he was being rewarded for it um, and, and, or recognized for it. But it's just sort of weird that everybody that he was a supervisor of was proud of him. Like, you know, I mean, I guess I don't know if it makes sense or not what I'm what I'm expressing, but um, that's kind of the vibe I picked up on. One hundred percent, you know, and like I said, I didn't I didn't really know everything he did. And each person that was like beside him on that day, because he was literally everywhere, kind of has like one snippet of it. Right. And even that one little piece where he came, I think he should get, you know, the highest award there is just for what he did in the you know few minutes he was with me. And I think everyone else feels that too. Like every, everything he did that day was to help somebody was to, was to move the line forward. And he just did not stop. And like you said, we expected it from him. So I think if they said, you know, he's getting the medal of honor and we're like, Oh, I'm so surprised. (laughs) Uh, That wouldn't really, you know, put into words, but to just be proud that a man who did all those things gets the recognition I think proud is, you know, just the perfect way to say it. Hypothetically, if one of those snipers had gotten Clint Romache, are you here today? No, no, no. I, I don't know what, I think after seeing Scusa go down, I think I was pretty shooken. And I think if I saw him go down too, I don't know. <laughs> You know, maybe I would be crawling through that turtle ditch back to the to the cop or the the talk. Um, 
you know, he he came out and he exposed himself to sniper fire just to help me. And I don't know, war works in mysterious ways. Mm-hmm. Wow. So uh, all these years later, um, I know you guys have had a couple of reunions and everything, but mm-hmm. when you guys get together, do you spend any time talking about October 3rd, 2009? Or you just sort of talk about other memories in general and have some laughs and share some barrack stories and things of, of that nature. I think a lot of guys that have kind of healed. Mm-hmm. I don't know that, I'm not saying that, you know, no, that's the right word, not healed, but a lot of guys that have healed know that a lot of those other guys haven't. And I know, you know, some of those guys are not going to go and, you know, talk to somebody about what happened. They're not going to, go to any type of therapy or, or, you know, counseling or anything like that. And so that time we have together is our window to start to close some wounds. And I think it gets, you know, we know we're on a, a on a clock to make sure everyone's okay. So, I mean, I, I can remember that last reunion we had, that bonfire got lit and and we were in it and we were talking and, and people were asking, how, how are you doing, you know? So I think are those hard think, hard conversations to start? They are because I think is it really even all, even with guys you're that close with or that had that sort of sort of uh, you know bond with it, it it's still hard to bring it up and talk about it because sometimes you know you forget what the guys we lost meant to certain people right and you start talking about it and you can just see on their face you know like they get reminded and so it is it's definitely tough. In the sense that we're we're not trying to, you know, drudge up bad things, but I think it just needs to be talked about. And I think I think that's the one and probably best place to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense of, you know, you understand the pain and you know how uncomfortable it is to sit in that pain, and so you don't want to bring that back up um, mm-hmm. because you're all hurting enough, right? You've all hurt enough. There's no need to 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 bring it back up. But like you said, I think there is a necessity in it. Um, in in growing through pain, right? One hundred percent. Is a lot of that what made you want to go into being a therapist? You mentioned before that the therapy thing we talked about at the beginning, but also you're in grad school, and so I mean, uh, was this the impetus for all that? Absolutely. And i I want to make veterans my focus, one hundred percent. And i i I've talked to people. I think that have been in combat about you know some of the things i was facing and it just resonated a lot better than you know those who haven't and and there's just a sense when you can when when someone's talking to you and you have those shared experiences that you just kind of feel much more freer talking about them and i feel like through everything i've been through and been able to come out the other side, I just want to be able to share that with somebody else and, and look at somebody who's gone through these things and say, I know how you feel. You know, I felt the exact same things you felt. For the people who are listening and they may be feeling overwhelmed, they may be feeling sort of overcome by their experience. What's the best way to reach them? What's the best way to start a conversation? What, what do you say to them? I mean, I, I always just say like, what, what was it like? You know, 
because I, I like to talk about the funny things first, right? So I'm, I'm talking about all of my mishaps with women, all of my uh, failings through basic training. And when you start to make that kind of connection, you know, the, the kind of the safety barriers start coming down a little bit. And then you can kind of move into, you know, the traumas. And, and I always lead first. I'm, and, I, and sometimes I get nervous when I talk to people about this stuff that, like, I'm not trying to tell them, you know, how's the cop Keating, you know. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people die. It was real bad. What did you do? Oh, a roadside bomb? That's nothing, loser, you know. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want, because, I mean, I've talked to people who have been hit by roadsides, and I, I can't even comprehend it. And. Yeah. And, and so when you have those different experiences, you got to find those shared experiences and, and that's kind of the road you have to go down. And, and then it just takes a lot of, there's a lot of pain involved of kind of opening up those wounds and, and finding out what's wrong. Well, the, the one thing that sticks with me from my roadside bomb, uh, and I could, when I talk about it, I could still hear, I can hear the metal crunching in my right ear. Mm. Like that noise is the most distinct thing in the world to me. Um, and hearing it and thinking, oh my God, I'm dead. You know, because mm-hmm. you know exactly what it is as soon as it starts. Mm-hmm. From the very first millisecond of the explosion, you know what it is. And then you just hear that noise and then you're like, holy shit, I'm still here. Um, mm-hmm. That was always, that's always the catalyst. Um, and I could still hear it in my right ear whenever I talk about it. Mm-hmm. My, my buddy said he felt like he was like dough. And his bot, the his there was no part of his body moving in the same direction. So sometimes when he, you know, he'd wake up and his arm would be hanging off the side of the bed, and he would panic because he could feel his body was moving in, you know, different directions. So, I, like I said, I couldn't even comprehend. I, every time I got on a, a convoy, I was like, this is this is more terrifying than anything else. I, I kind of skipped over this, but I figured I, I'll, I'll ask it now since you just jogged my memory on it. You, you got out of the military after what, four and a half years, five years? Yeah, five years, I think. Um, th- there was no desire to stay in? Like this was enough for you after uh, cop heating? Z- zero. I'm telling you, like before, I was not soldier material. You know, I was more of like a, a social experiment more than anything. You know, I, I literally every platoon I was in, I was like, I'm here for morale and uh, I'm here to keep the guys moving. And sometimes that looks like leadership. So they made me a Sergeant, but you know that they can't take it back. It's mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no backseats. Glad, glad you got that disclaimer out there. Yeah. Um, in case anyone's hearing this and they get any ideas. <laughs> it's Sergeant Copez to you there, pal. Um, yeah. And oh, by the way, any reflections on the decision now to extend for two years because of the girl in Colorado that put you sort of in Cobb Keating indirectly? You know, I'd like to say some things, but, you know, I buried the past (laughs) because I used to get like, I would sit there and be so pissed. I'm like, first off the bat, I was in Korea. I should have gone to Bliss and just went down to Tijuana and hung out. (laughs) eat the worm you know and then gone to college so then i re-enlisted i went to fort carson i should have been in four four or two four and went and sat in iraq while they're closing it down and came back and had you know a normal life but it was just like one thing after another 
And then uh, I got to Bravo Troop and they were putting us in platoons and Red Platoon, Platoon Sergeant was old Drill Sergeant Guerrero, my Drill Sergeant from basic training, mm-hmm. who remembered me. So the only reason I went to Red Platoon is because he saw me. He's like, hey, dick. And I was like, oh, <laughs> God. It was just like a series of mishaps. And then, of course, I'm in Red Platoon, but... Well, I have yeah. always, I've always said, listen, the army has a play as as a as a knack for putting you where you're supposed to be. Yeah, well, they put me in the wrong spot. <laughs> <laughs> I should have been looking at satellites or something. Ugh. But you know what? It happened, and uh, no backsies. So I'll just, you know, I, I had to heal from it. I'm healed. And uh, now I want to help other people. So that's my goal. Anything you miss about the Army? Oh, yeah. Just the partying. As I mentioned earlier. No one says that. Zach, no one says that. No one misses the part. Like, you can party in any job anywhere. No one ever says, I miss the partying about the Army. All right. Well, I'll tell you a quick snippet. Okay. Uh, Last weekend, uh, my buddy Tom dropped me off after uh, singing Cat Stevens songs at the bar. And I, and I had to kind of stumble through the door and my pregnant wife yelled at me. Do you think anyone yelled at me for being drunk in the army? No, no, no not Never at all. Once. Yeah. I mean, you know, you you are about to be responsible for another human being again. So yeah, well, and you'll the, be learning from the best, the, the, <laughs> but this one can't take care of itself for the most part. You know, this, this yeah. one's going to need a little bit more guidance than a funny joke. And by the way, the baby's never going to laugh at your jokes. It better. <laughs> that baby's already a buzzkill. <laughs> yeah. No one tells you that. No one's like, oh, by the way, when you're having a baby, it's just miserable. Oh. And when it, you and you when didn't get that memo? Out, nobody gave it to me. Bro, I have twins. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So We thought, yeah, we thought we could add twins. So Yeah, man. Um, life's over, bro. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm well aware. I mean, you know. And I just, I, I think back to Korea. I remember I had this sergeant who got a divorce and he was probably like 34, 35. And you he, thought, what's his old ass going to do? Yeah, and he just walked out of his room with his, his hands held high and then went and got a beer bong and chugged it. And I was like, maybe I could do 20. <laughs> <laughs> maybe this is where I belong. Oh, uh, well, listen, man, uh, all things considered, you know, uh, Everything you've been through, you know, I think you got a great outlook and um, I wish you nothing but the best of luck with your um, next profession in therapy and and dedicating your life to improving the quality of life of veterans. Um, That that is by far um, one of the best things that you can do to to help your fellow brothers out, brothers and sisters in arms and and really make an impact going forward. Because as we've said, and as you've said, we're not going to change anything that has happened. Um, you can't save any of the lives from Cobb Keating anymore, but you can save other ones. And, and that, that mission in and of itself uh, may have a grander purpose than anything you can do on a battlefield. Um, mm-hmm. And so with that, I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Good luck being a dad. Um, I hope, you, I hope your it. wife enjoys your sense of humor. Um, she doesn't. Well, then, 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 you're in, <laughs> then you're really in deep shit because uh, w- when she's tired and cranky and ticked off at the world and there's a screaming baby around yeah no one's laughing at anything just, yeah. just so you know i'm, I'm not saying maybe that. i'll maybe i'll re-enlist <laughs> 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 no, 
that'll solve everything. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See if you could be be a military psychologist. You know, you never know. There, there might be a, there might be a future there. But I certainly enjoyed talking to you, brother. Uh, thanks All for right, the laughs. Here. I mean, you know, it's 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 been fun, and I'm I'm glad we got to touch on some of the emotional stuff and, and really talk about some of the the tougher things that you that you went through. But you know, I think your context for the Battle of Camdash and Cobb Keating is is one that uh, you know certainly will provide people um, with a lot of background um, that they didn't have. And, and again, every time I talk to somebody from uh, Battle of Camdash and Cobb Keating, I, I get a little better perspective uh, of how close you guys were in Red Platoon and, and how much um, that day sort of has galvanized you all together going forward. And I think that's something truly special. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I mean, you know, I was talking earlier about like Jake Tapper mm-hmm. kind of started it, started it and got the word out. And I'm just so grateful that, you know, people like you just carrying that torch and, and, you know, like I got this kid coming and one day he can go through the archives and uh, listen to everyone's stories. And I just really appreciate as well what you've done for us and, and that we'll be able to kind of pass that on. No, that, and that's amazing. Like, honestly, that's one of the greatest joys in doing this is sort of the chronicling history portion of this whole thing. When people stop having books all together, like actual physical books, mm-hmm. you know, years down the road, this digital audio version of, of the stories that we're telling here should live on in perpetuity forever. Um, and, and I hope this one day that your son hears this and gets to hear you tell this firsthand account of this story. Um, that, that, that is sort of a, you know, Nirvana for this podcast, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Excellent. but again, Thank you for sharing it with us. Again, continued success. Nothing but the best of luck going forward. Zach Copas, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.